Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Good day, good evening, and good screaming. I am Jello Biafra, and this is Renegade Roundtable. There's all kinds of different opinions on, uh, especially today, Who is the hardest working man in show business? Of course, that was a slogan invented by James Brown for James Brown. And he he lived up to it pretty well. But who is the hardest working man in show business? I'd say a pretty damn good nominee will be coming on screen momentarily here. Please welcome my old friend and much respected compadre, colleague, you name it, brother, Mike Watt. Brother Jello. Hello, Mike Watt. Thanks for having me aboard. Oh yeah, you, did you just get out of the bath? Should we have been? Should we have been doing this in two different bathtubs with each other? I, I did a shower, but it was way earlier. I tell you, I comp. I only stay up late for gigs. We're like an hour from my conk time, so you're six twenty-two p.m. Oh really? Internet show. Ah, uh, conk time. Yeah, conking and then out. I, I pop it for Also, a master inventor of his own slang too. What's? I'm sorry. What? We're all pro- you, we were talking about Mr. Brown coming up with his, um, or maybe Bobby Baird did that. It's like wearing a toupee, right? If I conk early, I'm going to pop early. So this started happening maybe about 20 years ago. <laughs> I always stay up there you go. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of a well, you kind of have to. Because most rock and rollers, right, they stay up to all hours of the night and I'm not like that anymore. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's not just it's not just Crosby, Stills, and Nash and Brian Wilson and crew who know a thing about sunrises. Let's put it that way. I know about sunrises because I'm rising with the sun. They, they're, they're still up, right? That's my cue. I think that's what happened, Jella. You may know Buzz from the Melvins as an early riser. His body clock just does that. Yeah. And of all people, Al Jorgensen is a very early riser now, Is too. that right? Okay, he must be healthier. You know, it happened yeah, to me with the, yeah. uh, I think it was the sun, because I had to conk with masks on. I just, any kind of light makes me awake. So I think that's where it kind of came <laughs> from. And then they say, like, I remember, you know, I did, I read meters in the late 70s. My first union job, it was six stars, 15 cents an hour. I remember Solidarity was going on in uh, Gdansk, right? I wrote a poem about it. I never read right, a damn right. about the meter man until I was the man who had to read the meters, man. That's free, and and this was this was for uh, PG and E or another it was, utility. Uh, it was um, Mr. Edison, that bastard's uh, spawn. Oh, okay. Or, or somebody Edison. stole his it was name. Actually, it wasn't Pedro right. because we're Department of Water Power for Los Angeles. So it was across the bridge here, or two bridges really, in Strong Beach, and for Southern California Edison. But what I would see these older guys, retired dudes, right? It's five in the morning. These guys are in their garages fussing around. I'm thinking, what? But now I know. <laughs> Be careful for being a know-it-all Body too clock. young, right? Because you're going to get there. <laughs> you have arrived. So even before you were a meter reader, let's go back and begin at the beginning. What created you? Uh, well, I was conceived in Chicago. There's a boot camp there for sailors, Lake Shore. My pop was 18 years old. My mod moved from Peoria 
to uh, Chicago. You know, the big town for Midwest people, you being closer to Chi-Town would know this. It's not really the coast. If you're in the middle, it's Chicago. So that's where she went. And so there, there's a, Soviets had just come into Hungary. So there's a refugee uh, benefit. And that's where my mom meets my pop. And I'm conceived there, but I'm born in Portsmouth, Virginia, because him being a young sailor and a machinist mate in nuclear Navy, which we had to make one really quick. So we move it all over getting trained. Wow. But So I'm born in Portsmouth, Virginia. I'll come back there to live in Norfolk. And then from there, that's when I come to Pedro. And that's where my ma would not. He got orders again for Alameda yeah. up in your parts, because that's where the Enterprise, not Captain Kurtz, uh-huh. My mouth said, fuck this shit, no more moving. And so we stayed in Pedro, couldn't live in the Navy housing anymore. So these they built these projects next to the old projects at Park Western. That's where I meet D. Boone. That's a big sea change in my life. Well, and and just think, um, you know, that that was a that was a real good turn for the better because if you'd grown up in Alameda, you might have wound up playing bass in Dead Kennedys instead. Klaus told me about him coming from Boston in like one or two days after arriving, he answers an ad. I didn't know he was that fresh off the boat I, or I, out I, of who, the van. In his like that. <laughs> he told me he was jamming. Get this. He told me in Boston he was jamming with Leslie West. And then Felix Papillardi got his gig. So he said, fuck it, I'm going west, young man. Yeah, he never told me about his time in what became Mountain or anything. He's originally from Detroit, but then as an adult, he uh, he, he was playing in bands in Boston. I don't know if you mentioned Magic Terry and the Universe to you. Leslie not, West. Which was a, uh, you know... A, an insane psychedelic project with, with a singer who I've heard a little bit of like a toilet quality tape of what was the be- only thing he had proving that band existed. And that guy was amazing. It was kind of spoken word as done by yeah. Arthur Brown with all kinds of weird time signatures, but it made sense behind him. And apparently Ben Edmonds was the manager and they made an album for Columbia and an album for RCA. Neither were ever released and i've begged the sundays guy you've got to find this magic terry album at least one of them but nothing has ever surfaced i don't know if the tape survived and guess who the guitar player was in that band? no idea billy squire wow squire billy, yeah billy 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 squire. From the descendants got into him for some reason uh when they were doing loose uh, his nickname in magic terry was uh <laughs> it was dollar bill because he was so money obsessed but uh you know they didn't work together after that and eventually he went his own way and might be doing casinos today i have no idea he did have some hits but uh anyway back to uh back to pedro so when did you how old were you when you and dennis you know d d boone met 12 i come here when i'm nine so i'm three 12 yeah so i'm three almost four years in the navy house and then i have to leave so it's between sixth grade and seventh grade right they had junior high in them days so it's in that summer right and i'm walking in this park the biggest park in pedro it's next it it joins both our projects the old one he was lived in and the newer one that i lived in his was just called park western mine was called park western estates Air cracker boxes, you know, technical <laughs> things. And, but couldn't live in the Navy housing anymore. That Navy housing across the Western Avenue, you know, either starts or ends in Pedro. This this road, if you've been in Los Angeles, it goes in, pa- past the valley. It, it's incredible. But the, the the there was a graveyard across the street from this, still there. That's where D. Boone's planted. Along with the uh, guy who spent his last 14 years here, 
Charles Bukowski. So now that Navy housing's all gone. For a long time, it was some SWAT training thing. And now it's like million dollar oh, yay. thing. Yeah, just disgusting. So the names of the street, right? They're named after some guy who put out a boiler fires up like Samuel DuPont or John D. Sloat. All those names are gone. Even D. Boone, right? His, and they tore his up in the beginning of the 80s in uh, Tarragona, right? He lived on Battery Street. No, that, that's not good enough. It's, it's Tarragona. You know, these real estate developers, they create... You know, Strathmore, <laughs> Tarragona. It, it's hilarious. The whole idea of real estate is such a fundamental. It, they're the ones who pick who lives next to who a lot of time. Yeah, it's really weird. But anyway, oh, yeah. I meet him just by coincidence. You know, he's playing with his buddies at this park, Peck Park. Jumps out of it. He had really bad eyesight. Jumps out of a tree. He thinks I'm his next door neighbor, nicknamed Eskimo. Now, his friends had all run off. And I, no, I ain't Eskimo. But, you know, I just moved here. You want me to show you where I live? So we walk across the baseball fields, and he starts rattling off to me all these bits. And I'm thinking, this is the smartest motherfucker in the world. So I get to his pad. You know, I show up my pad, and I show him the new thing. Okay, tomorrow, I'm going to show you my pad. So the next day, you know, it's summertime, right? We ain't just got a school. Go to his pad. He plays me this cassette that he made off the television of George Carlin doing one of his acts. He didn't make up any of that shit the day before. He <laughs> bit all them bits. But it was too late. I cement with him. And his ma, funny, that, that same day, now she played guitar as a girl, so she had him taking lessons. This guy, Roy Mendez Lopez, who lived in his Volkswagen, kind of hippie guy, you know, self-taught, made his own guitars. On. Practice, practice. That was his big uh, mantra. Would uh, find clothes in the dumpster and then uh, used white shoe polish to make them white. Anyway, she says, you guys are going to have a band and you're going to be the bass player. I didn't even know what bass was. You know, we're 12. Huh. Right? And and the only rock band D. Boone knew when I met him was Creed's Clearwater Revival. So he had all six of them. Fuck Mardi Gras, you know, but he had the six real wreck. Yeah, when I was about that age, I loved Creedence. Okay. I loved Creedence, but I thought he was a black soul singer. He, he had some of that. People say country, but they had all kinds of stuff in their music, right? And and, and I think what heard it, their version, oh, yeah. I heard it through the grapevine. They've got, he's got brothers singing uh, in the background with him. But anyway, you know... <laughs> So I, I don't even know a bass has bigger strings, right? I th in the pictures, it looks like a guitar with four. So I thought they had thinner neck. So I'm playing this guitar with four strings. I can't hear. Of course, he's got like, you know, an inch and a half of grape juice on the right. He don't use the uh, record covers to put records. You know, they're on the hardwood floor and the $15 stereo. And you have to put seven quarters on to keep it from skipping. I can't hear what the bass is doing. But I notice on the covers that the singer's shirts. Now, you know, I, I grew up in Navy. I don't know what lumberjacks and farmers wear you know i just think that's his rock and roll shirt so this is how i get the flannels i thought if i wore his shirts deep boom would still like me because i could not figure out them fucking bass lines then I, now jack bruce i could hear him a little bit james jamerson you know in the motown things and in fact that ended up being really key for minuteman because the political thing about minuteman for d boone was the way because we come out of arena rock right the first uh gig we saw was t-rex we were 14 a couple years later. His daddy takes us to Long Beach Auditorium. It's 1973. It was $2.50 $2 to go. No merchandise, right? There's some guys a few blocks away selling bootlegs. I remember I got a Mark Bolin poster. It was my first rock and roll hero. But 
We didn't know about club music. When did you get turned on to club music? I mean, we didn't right. know about, if I would have known the Stooges in 73 was playing the whiskey, you know, but we had no idea. We thought all gigs were at, you know, Big Pad, your Nuremberg rally shit. You know? When did you find out about club music? I will forever be jealous of Keith Morris and I think Chuck Dukowski and yeah. some others who did see those Iggy and the Stooges shows at the Whiskey. And of course, being in Colorado, there were clubs. I knew about it, but it was all, who's going to be the next Eagles? Who's going to be the next Firefall? Who were LA guys yeah. who moved to the Boulder area and claimed them they were a Boulder band. It was just, it meant, it meant Stooges records and MC5 were very cheap, but uh, uh, yeah. People and I, and I was and I was the only person for years before some of my friends got into it. But uh, the I just figured, you know, and Chuck Dukowski made this point to me um, when we were talking about strategy and shit, 80, 81. Look, we like to play Black Flag and rented halls because it's not a club situation. Did you like going to clubs when you were a kid? No, you'd, you'd be really self-conscious. You wouldn't I have never a went date. To you might job. not go and not have a good time. I never went to What's a that? club. I never went to a club until the movement. I just didn't even know about them. Right. I, I barely did. Yeah. I think I'd seen Commander Cody at this record company showcase club called Ebbets Field in Denver, where the next thing I saw there opening for an FM band called Night City was the Ramones. Oh, wow. And uh, they scared the, the living daylights out of most of the people there. And uh, we in the front row, result, we wound up with Dead Kennedys, the Wax Tracks label, the Nails, who had 88 lines about 44 women. That came out of there. Don Fleming was at that show. And uh, Al Jorgensen was there, too. He's a Denver guy? No, no. He, he's he's originally from Havana, then uh, Chicago, time in Florida, where his grandparents wound up. and uh, But they, they moved him out to, I think, Frisco, Colorado, and he told me earlier to get him away from all the bad things he was getting into in either Chicago or Florida, and instead he just continued on that path. Never went to the Wax Track store in Denver, strangely enough, but he was says he was at that show while he was going to college in all places Greeley, Colorado. University of Northern Colorado, a place I would never wish on anyone. Yeah, right, right, right. That first ministry and, with the cape, we got the hair out there and the capes. <laughs> He's been through the trips. Oh, yeah. <laughs> He's been through the trips. But, but anyway, I didn't really know about clubs. But the idea of being able to talk to people, you know, it was just the Nuremberg oh, yeah. rally thing was just so much. You sit in the dark there. The guys are like a quarter of an inch. No, they're 16th of an inch tall. Oh, I know. It's no base. That was, that was all I knew yeah. because all the clubs, it was all either wannabe Dan Fogelbergs, of which he was one, or wannabe Eagles and Firefalls, or occasionally they'd sw switch it up with Scientology Jazz Fusion for the most part. And occasionally something cool Mark. might show up at the legendary. I did see, but at this, it was at the Long Beach Arena. You know what they would do? at an arena show that couldn't fill it, they had a curtain so they could, in fact, I had this idea for torn anti-cave device. You know, you just roll in this big curtain rod, whatever the crowd is. Hey man, <laughs> you corral them in. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I saw Malvi Stoke. That's the only fusion band I saw. I saw this one gig at the Long Beach arena, pure food and drug act opened up and it was all curtained off. So it was really like maybe a fifth of the place. Right. Like what? Right, right. <laughs> See that? I just food? didn't know about clubs. I, I now I, uh, people later on, I, I, I talked to girls went to the whiskey. 
Once I, so I was washing pots and pans a block and a half away at the hospital. Dollar twenty an hour, man. <laughs> for work this was Pedro, right? And girls would go to the Rainbow Bar and Grill, uh, the Whiskey and Go Go. They were into glam and glitter, but very small and Rocky Horror Picture right, Show. My sister brought me to that, and I saw a lot of those first punk rockers at that. They knew all the words, uh-huh. throwing the toast. Yeah, because it kind of took over the movie, right? Well, that's kind of what compared to arena rock gig. That's what a punk gig was to, for me in a club. The idea of Pat Smear playing for you and then standing next to you right after you could rap to the dude. I mean, that was not my experience with rock and roll up to that point. Oh, I know. I mean, what broke the arena thing for me was another person, the band I forgot about that resulted from that Ramon show at Ebbets Field. Joseph Pope was there too, who moved west and started Anx, yeah. who made the albums on SST. And we were close. We were high school buddies. His older brother, John, John E. Risk was in my grade, Joe a couple of years younger, but he was the guy who got into Stooges and Ramones and all that good stuff. And um, along with Sam Turner, another friend, John Trujillo, Rick Stott, who ran so the record store and later managed the ravers who became the nails later and moved to new york and left me the roadie behind but took sammy and joseph behind but anyway joseph was as you know very outgoing very forward person very charismatic one-on-one so he disappeared for a little bit while we were waiting and stuff he comes back hey i was just backstage talking to the ramones you can talk to a rock star you talked to a rock star yeah man yeah come on back and we all went back and they were very nice approachable people very conscious of the seeds they were planting all over the country and the world not knowing yeah there might you know who had this this greasy dude with the bent glasses and the long hair might turn into something else later like angst or dead kennedys or something they they knew they were having such a great almost you know like instead of being saved for jesus or whatever we were finally saved by people bringing back the spirit of rock and roll that had almost been deliberately wiped out by the majors pushing adult rock and soft rock and that's all you get except of course the Nuremberg Rally Arena shows that you and I went to. Okay, moving backwards from being able to actually talk to a musician or a rock star or something, which one of you first discovered the Blue Oyster Cult? I told you, D. Boone only knew Creedence, so I turned him on to all that shit. Aha, cool. Well, how did you discover it then? Did you hear them on the radio? Or did you? I have one thing over D. Boone. One thing over D. Boone. Did, did you? Did you hear about them? Hear them on the radio there? No, they would play Long Beach a lot. Oh, I see. They, they, they Long Beach for some reason was very popular for them. That KNAC, the rock and roll radio station, did a lot of airplay for them. You know, in those days, right? Torn was actually an arm of the record company. That's why that was only two fifty to CT racks. They wanted people to go the gigs. To buy records, it wasn't an, an industry unto itself yet. Aha! Uh-huh. That's why there was no merchandising. There was no fucking merch in those days. Oh, I know. I made my own blue oyster cult shirt with the stencil <laughs> I cut out, but which is Kronos, right? I've, I found out the story. The Gallic guy he put his washer in the Kronos thing. It's not three exclamation points and a question mark. It's actually the old uh, it was, Romans called him Saturn, but the Greeks called him Kronos. He's the guy who took out Uranus and then got taken out by Zeus. He's right, he's an in-betweener. He's and, a, and, and the mark for that is an upside-down question mark? Well, 
No, it's it looks like that. It looks like three exclamation marks and upside down because he put a washer there. It's actually this weird kind of bent cross. You know how Mars has a circle with the arrow and Venus has like uh, the lady's mirror. These are signs that they used. The Greeks, uh, the planet means wanderer because they were stars that went backwards. They didn't understand them. So they gave them special signs. And Kronos was the one that took the longest. So he's like Father Time, Saturn, the Romans called him. But Gallic took that fucking symbol for him and put a washer there. And that's where they get the bill. They all went to live together in a house. I learned this from Richard Meltzer and stuff, right? They went to Stony Brook, S-U-N-Y. Al Lanier, Buck Dharma, and Albert Bouchard, the the core of the band. Uh, Yeah, I found this out all later, you know. But here's the thing. All the arena rock bands were really popular. It was hard to find weird bands. Like, you you found out about that Terry guy in uh, Boston. It was hard to know about that kind of shit. I didn't know. When I met punk rockers, you know, like Don Bowles and stuff who know, you know, Byron Coley, they know all this minutia. The most intelligent people in music collected I ever met in my life was through the movement. Yeah, they didn't have the best social yeah, and, skills, but they were really <laughs> into fucking investigating into music. Shit that, you know, Pet- Raymond Pettibone plays me Ascension. I thought that was a germs band, you know, I... I had no idea about this shit. And I got to tell you about how I found out about the scene. Well, we both did. We were playing with our our buddy, Mark Weisswasser, trying to learn Tie Your Mothers Down or something. And this guy, he turns out to be the drummer of the weirdos. He told us there was a scene up in Hollywood where where people wrote their own songs. (laughs) To show you how bleak fucking shit was. We were like, what? Because we didn't know anybody who did that. No one in Pedro, the best guy, you know, musician was a guy who could play Black Dog the best. It wasn't somebody who wrote songs. We didn't, that, that was unheard of. Okay, so, but Blue Eyes. Let alone those kind of songs. <laughs> well, just any kind of, you know, whatever the fuck. So, so Blue Eyes to Cult, you know, you would send in for the lyrics and come on some computer printout shit. What did those words mean? I did that. Too. Yeah, 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 right. The the thing with the green and white bars and and they weren't uh, they weren't like uh, chorus uh, uh, readout sheets in the studio. I mean, they they just ended when the the the, the end of the you know like pettybone lyrics. You know, when you get to the margin, that's when you stop. <laughs> and what was you know like the mummy's inscription in the bat wing tongue? I mean, what does shit mean? All that stuff. It, but it was like the germ song, What We Do Is Secret. There was something about BOC that wasn't like, uh, you know, Grand Funk Railroad. I guess at first that name was mysterious, but then they threw the, the railroad part off. Everybody had that red <laughs> record in their living room just so you could be part of the thing. You know, that's the thing. It became too much lingua franca. You need some kind of weirdness so you can find your place, right? Oh, yeah. Well, but, but before we get back to uh, all the things that went into creating Mike Watt today, and obviously there is a lot. In my case, the first record I ever bought, the first album just on a hunch, was a Blue Oyster Cult album, Tyranny and Mutation. Ah, I'd heard like three seconds of it in an ad on an FM radio station, The Blue Oyster Cult, and now on sale at Budget Tapes and Records for just $2.89. Not four bucks, not five bucks, $2.89. So it looked really cool because of the Gallic art, which I wish they'd kept using. I brought it home, and it kind of... He disappeared. I, I know the well, story. It, it kind of first, I, uh, yeah, they couldn't get any more out of him. Okay, we'll get to that in a minute. Couldn't get more I'll, art I'll out of shut him up in a minute uh, here. But that... he, he disappeared, Jella. They couldn't get yeah. more art oh, out of him. He disappeared. He disappeared. He's only two. Oh, my God. And in he fact, knew. key names, get this. 
he names that album Tyranny Mutation. Because when he heard the music, he said, that's what that is. And they said, whoa. And he made this big old album cover art, which turned in that big tower, right? He had that, they had that in the mm-hmm. living room of the house they all lived in. But then he disappears. Wow. They never see him again. They don't know what wow. happened to him. Maybe his name wasn't even Gallic, so there's no way you'll find him on Facebook or Google him or anything. People have tried. I've talked to Albert Bouchard about this. Yeah. But anyway, so with it, within about two or three weeks, maybe less, Tyranny and Mutation was my favorite album in the world. And I thought, you know, maybe I should have more what I call magic accidents like this. And not that long afterwards, I discover the used record store, trade a tape right near Boulder High School. So I just went down there after school every single day, checking out the 50 cent bin where I found an MC5, the free box. I took everything every single day for three years just to see what it was, even finding singer-songwriters I actually liked. Like, this guy's got some talent. Why isn't he big, Jimmy Buffett? That was an, that was living been I in three quarters. But anyway, so it was kind of the opposite of you, where I was having more and more magic accidents, broadening my own musical horizons all the way up into Ema Sumac when a Spanish teacher played her in class as an example of some other country's stuff, and then I find. Uh, Voice of the Hatabai, or however you pronounce it, produced by Les Baxter. So then I found a Les Baxter album. But mostly, I was trying to get every heavy rock album ever made. And boy, were there some good ones out there, including ones that nobody knows about to this day, like Highway Robbery or something. But uh, anyway, so it's kind of the opposite with me. I explored everything, including, you know, you know, psych and prog and space rock entered me that way before punk hit. And then that really got a hold of me because I, I was finding the mid 60s garage rock albums, too. I remembered them from when I was a seven year old and first got turned into rock and roll. Oh, wow. A music machine album. I gotta take this home. And my God, they were the other Velvet Underground, if only they'd lasted. But anyway, okay, so you were starting to go to punk shows and even, you know, be able to talk to somebody like Pat Smear in no small part because he's a pretty nice dude, too. Yeah, and, and the scene was small. You would go every week up up to Hollywood. Right, of course. It was about 30 miles north of Pedro, right? We're in the harbor. And you go up there, and they're yeah. all from different parts. The Valley, Inland Empire, Orange County, Boo. Monica, Hermosa Beach, right? The flag. I don't know any of these parts. None of these parts. I mean, you fly over LA or SoCal, because it's actually three or four different counties. It looks like one fucking town, but it's balkanized up the Yang. Oh, yeah. Hermosa is only 16 miles away, and we're both next to the water, but we're fucking have nothing to do with them. I remember Hermosa Beach being the the cradle of Black Flag. Right, right. They'd say anything south of Melrose was the beach. Like, yeah, right. Okay, well, let, let, let's go into that for a minute, because as long as I've known you, you're always, you know, you're Watt from Pedro and a very fierce pride and love about San Pedro, California. Yeah. And one of my longtime dreams has been to have the guided tour of Pedro, courtesy of Mike Watt. Now I know why you wear the anchor around your neck all the time. You're a Navy. You're a Navy kid. But uh, do you want to tell people, especially in descriptive terms that people who only hear the audio can understand, what is it about Pedro that makes it so such a beloved part of your heart and part of your spirit that I doubt you're ever going to move anywhere else? Yeah, the, the anchor was given to me... When- 
made my first opera. I used my pop's story in the Navy to tell the story of the Minuteman. You know, I was always afraid to talk about losing D. Boone, and that was a way to do it. And somebody brought—I didn't even see their face. I was bringing out my bass stuff. My knee was better, and they—it was this. And I thought, if I wear that necklace, maybe I'll have good luck. But what Pedro is for me—it's where the bungee cord. Now, if you call a tour morden. A month. I've done 67. I just did in the 67th one. It was 48 gigs in 48 days. Wow. 12,580 miles. I drove oh, every one of them. And I can't schlep gear, so I try to make comp. You and George Thorogood and the Melvins. Yeah, we are into that. So I, I'm a sa- you're right. I'm a sailor's son, and I kind of got a sailor's lifestyle. So in a way, you, you need the home base. And that's why I don't take it for granted. But I like visiting other people's pads, too. But notice I said visit. Not live there. Of course. I live in Pedro. Right. To appreciate Pedro, I have to visit the other pads. It's a weird dangling duality, Jella. It's like everybody's got their own towns, but then we take turns, you know, checking it out. You roam, you roost, right? Don Quixote kind of sally forth. You dream up the possible dream, sally forth. Then you got, you take blows. You got to come back and get it back together. So that's what it is. It's 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 part of a, cy- a cyclic thing, which for SoCal is trippy because, right, it's always good weather. That's another reason. That's why I love Pedro. Good weather. Do you, do you have a whole other network of friends you grew up with down there, Pedro people who never left like you? Are there is there a whole other set of peeps down there for you? Uh, not really. A lot of them moved. Everybody thinks people okay. talk like me. You know, none of us Minutemen West from Pedro. We all come here as boys. Georgie from Brockton, Massachusetts, uh-huh. part of Boston. Dee Boone was actually born in Napa. Okay? Oh my I'm God. from Virginia. Who knew? So you know how sometimes when you adopt a place, like you in the city, right? You're not in Boulder. You visit, but your home no. is, right? Oh, yeah. Sometimes I think an adopted home is stronger and like, than the way fate puts you. It kind of depends. I, I just, Because of all my different musical backgrounds, yeah. I never jo- got on the crime, the band, train, or some of the others. <laughs> Everything <laughs> hippie is automatically bad. I mean, sure, off went my long hair, but like, okay, this is still part of me too. You know, I'll go to a country show. I feel all country, especially if I'm in Colorado. And yes, I have, <laughs> I got a lot of flannel shirts that are still at my mom's place that I wore either growing up or were my dad's, you know, some of them would fit you. You need more flannel. I'll bring you some. I'm not kidding. You know what? You can wear, you can wear some of my dad's on stage and carry on his spirit. Here's one thing I'm picky about though. One or two pockets. I hate one pocket flannels. I don't know why, but they rub me the wrong way, Jella. But here's the thing about crime. Ricky Sleeper was their drummer. I know. Ain't that a trip? I that guy was incredible. Wasn't he one, one gig and then maybe it was. had to go to the bathroom partway through and walked <laughs> off the stage? But just the idea of this new, oh, wave, this new wave band with Ricky Sleeper on drums. Oh yeah. Oh well. Well, he's he's on uh, Heart Wire My Heart. Yeah, he's, right. That's he's what I mean. Doing what they're doing, it it works. It works. But what I'm trying try to say is, like, I think like you, we we kept all of ourselves inside, both for you know to make our music more interesting and just where what we like to listen to, oh, where we fuckers you did to voyages we took, and everything gets Fuck. added on and widens the pyramid from where we were already at. I mean. To, to jump forward for a minute, if in case I forget really this bad. later, um, you know, not only did you get the bass slot in the Stooges and Iggy in the Stooges, which I thought was the, the best decision 
you know, Iggy ever made quite possibly to let that happen and have that happen. But, you know, couldn't have gone to a more deserving, hardworking man in show business, my man. But maybe the second time you came through and I saw the Stooges and we were hanging out, you told me when you went off tour, you were about to audition for Merle Haggard. That's a pretty wide palette. What what, what we're talking about, I think is substantial what you're saying. Wherever you go, there you are. Great way of putting it. And so some kind of outside things change. There is a core to the person. Yeah, I think I think that that's a really great way of putting it. I've never heard that before. My pop, he liked to be you know what you know what he really dug was the way the word assume was spelled. He says, That's no accident. (laughs) You do that shit and you make an ass out of you and me. That's no (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, what I was trying to get to was uh, was um, leapfrogging forward when you got asked into the Stooges, which I said, yeah, that was about the best oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. best decision I think Iggy Pop ever made. I assume Ron Ashton helped with that too. No, it was Ronnie. It was yeah. Ronnie. Iggy and- wanted to get his guy from his solo band, a guy named Pete. And Ronnie said to him, now they hadn't talked in 29 years. Right. He says, Watt knows the song. And it was Ronnie who fought for me. So he called me up. He says, Ronnie says, you're the man. He said, would you do me a favor? He said, would you wear a T-shirt instead of a flannel? And I said, fuck yeah, that's John Fogarty's idea anyway. I said, what about Levi and Converse? He said, that's strong. I was like, whoa. Okay. He talked to me a long time about how the light. And that was Iggy talking or Ronnie? This is, talking? No, this is Iggy. He calls me up. He said he had talked to Ronnie. I'm on tour with my second man. I'm in Tallahassee. I think the second cow house. I thought it was going to be one gig, Jella, that Coachella gig. I didn't know it was going to be 125 months. <laughs> <laughs> Shows to go, you right. Well, it was a good gig, was it? Not? Absolutely. I mean, I, and and you put you you put it to me at the time after a gig or two, when people were saying, "Yeah, Watt is playing the songs really well. He's driving the whole band, and he's not trying to be flashy, Mike Watt." And you told me, "Yeah, I'm trying to channel I'm Dave absolutely. Alexander, the original Stooges What's bass his name? player, David Michael Alexander. What's my name? Michael David Watt. Ain't that a trip? <laughs> wow." <laughs> There you go. Also, about the second time I saw you, you told me when you got off that Stooges tour, that was still a Ronnie, Scotty, you and Iggy tour, that you were, speaking of a wide palette, you were about to audition for Merle Haggard. I wish I could have got that gig. That would have been beautiful. That would have been beautiful. But yeah, I've, I've been Well, what would have happened if you had a gig with a student and a gig with Merle Haggard on the same day, especially if it was at the same town? Well, I'd do it. I mean, music is music. I hate the idea of genre. <laughs> I just fucking hate it. I think it's like a gulag, Berlin Wall type of trip. I think it was a marketing device. Oh, totally. Right? They were trying to make their job easier, uh, and it it ended up being really lame. Genre is bullshit. Music is music. And- Hotel. Oh, right? It. It's one of the exactly. one of the few fabrics humans can connect without being having to be Nazis on each other. Oh yeah. The, the more you get conscious of genre or whatever, the less interesting your music can become over time, even if you're really, really good at it. There was no old school punk back when you were first going to shows, and so was I. You know, there the, the, the palette was being drawn from everybody from the Stooges and the Velvets, and as some of us with like me and Klaus Beefheart, as well as um, you know, you the only place you'd ever find a Ronette's album 
album was in some punk household where somebody found it in a thrift store. You know, the same for the James Browns, a lot of Johnny Cash. It wasn't listening to other punk bands over and over and over again. And in San Francisco, there were so few people in the scene, just like L.A., the peer pressure was, we don't want you to sound like any of us. You better sound like something different or we don't want to know. Good point. There, we were blowing up the school. Yeah, absolutely. We were blowing up the school. So back to Merle Haggard. Did you actually do the audition? It never happened, but I wish. I wish. Oh, uh, oh tell me it, about it. You know what? Music I mean, to music. I, if I would have been with that man, I bet you I would have had a shot. But because of the, the fucking clowns in the clown suits, <laughs> it was a clown car ride. And Watt never even got a shot at a man-to-man. So did you approach somebody connected with him or did oh, they approach me. you? It was me uh, connected, with, uh, not connected with me out of, <laughs> out of the blue, but I, I dug it. Well, you never are going to try. I, I like his, uh, are you going to try and get working a man blues? I mean, I, I, oh yeah. Filled right. I mean, in spite of his far right wing reputation, because of fight inside of me, which he laughed at, right? I mean, he, he he laughed and winked when he played it when I was in San Francisco and everybody was singing along and he was just, we, everybody was loving it and stuff. But later on, Merle Haggard, he was way on our side of the fence about working man's issue. He was really anti-NAFTA. He was really against the war on drugs. And he finally came out and said, I had more freedom when I was in prison than the average American has today. He still smoked a lot of mota. And he meant it and he knew. Yeah. Yeah, there would be that he, he too. Disowned I, mean, I mean, I sure wish he was still with yeah. us. I would love to have him on Renegade Roundtable, but he's long yeah. gone. Well, he lived hard, you know. And actually, he lived pretty long for oh, the yeah, life style he lived, right? Because unlike Johnny Cash, he actually went to jail. Well, <laughs> well, oh yeah. Oh yeah. Many others did too. And some of them, well, no more on that for now, I suppose. But, you know, maybe David Allen Coe will need a bass player at some point. You know, I love the politics of bass. You look good making them look good. <laughs> Where the grout, you know, most people, they go into the good head, they point. look at the tile. Where the shit that fits the tile. I, I, I will uh-huh. never, ever, ever yeah. stop being grateful to D. Boone's Ma for putting me on bass. Thank you, Margie Boone. There you go. Margie Boone, there you go. How well did he get along with his parents Big in time. the end? Big time. Well, his ma dies when we're 18 really? years old. She was the pillar oh. of the family. So the whole family fell apart when she died. Yeah, all three ma's helped the Minutemen. Georgie's ma let us practice in the back of the pad. My ma let me, into, when I had the knee surgeries in my early 20s, we had to move back in with her. The ma's helped the Minutemen a lot. Yeah, believe it or not. And, and the same thing wow. with Black Flag. Yeah, because I think it was you, and if it wasn't you. Know, Black you. Flag with uh, Regis Ginn, right? The father buying him the chow right. and the thrift store clothes. Parents were involved. We we weren't anti-parent bands in a way. <laughs> Didn't the Stooges guys live with their parents in the early days of the band? Ronnie, no, all, Ronnie always did. You know, the only time he didn't live with his ma was when he was living in Hollywood. And was that kind of just a thing later on where she kind of wanted him there anyway, companionship and everything else? A good uh, friend of mine, Bob Furbish in Denver, one of the greatest mastering of recording engineers in the world to this day, studio was at mom's. But, you know, these these situations weren't your typical, like, suburb households, you know? I can't say the Minutemen, we're from working families and stuff, Morikano. And then the Gins, that was a trippy thing. Regis was this 
trippy cat, man. He was a trippy cat. So you wouldn't call these college professors. Well, he did teach at Harbor College, a community college. Uh, he he was a trippy guy. I mean, he was kind of eccentric. You know, these weren't like like the the girls who joined Charlie Manson's family. You know, who were running from some <laughs> suburbia thing. Those were kind of like. My parents don't want to know me. I mean, these are different kinds of situations, I think, Jello. Right. How many Ginn siblings are there? Uh, there was two older sisters, and then okay. there was the three younger brothers. Greg was the older. Three? Yeah, Raymond, because you don't know Adrian. Adrian didn't do music and stuff, the younger one. But there's one uh -huh. you don't really know of so much because he never got in bands. But there's, of course, Greg, and then his maybe year and a half younger is Raymond. Of course. Right. Right. And is his real name Raymond, or are we not supposed to know what his real oh, first his real name, name was? But his daddy would give him all okay. nickname, and his name was Pettibone, which means okay. uh, 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 small and pretty. And then uh, Greg's nickname was Kierkegaard. I'm probably the first one to wow. tell that. But so it wasn't Lurch. No. <laughs> that was a was name, Lurch. I think, from Mugger. Okay. Mugger was a guy who'd get beat up, an uh, Orange County guy, get beat up by his brother and his father every night, them drunk. And they took a baseball bat to them, broke their legs, and became the black oh flag God. roadie. Ended up the SST accountant, goes to college, puts up those school, right. and ends up a teacher. The, the, all those guys, all those people in that whole thing are trippy stories. They're all personal stories. A, a lot of the old punk rockers, right? Trippy stories. Course. Yeah. You know, I I, I, uh, I was just getting over being just nonstop angry at my parents, both my mother and my father, even kind of before I moved away. And then as soon as I moved away, things got a lot better, but also getting more and more tales from other people about what their home life was like and how violent it was sometimes. Yeah. It was with and Mugger. Stuff. Big Deuce time. from the Toxic Reasons was talking about his family and, you know, girlfriends and others and the kind of stuff some of them went through in different ways we're gonna realize my god i i got i got through really really easily and they were actually for the most part they put up with me becoming what i was and growing my hair out in sixth grade before anybody else in the class did and then then finally they let me have a record player and they knew what would happen when they did but all these records began marching into the house and you know everything from black sabbath and the stooges to sparks and stuff which you know my poor sister was on the other side of the bedroom wall at her own bedroom room and she got subjected to all of it you know i wonder i wonder i wonder whether she recognized the velvet underground if her the scottish guy she made she married later uh, her late husband clive they both died in a mountain climbing accident unfortunately and i i really liked him too and then found out when we were going through the stuff oh my god clive had velvet underground records wow. he had fresh fruit which i knew but he had he had you know he had joy division and other things so uh we would have had a lot to talk about and what was in the cd the player was the album he bought from Alejandro Escovedo at a show we all went nice. to in Eugene, Oregon after a cousin's wedding. So then take going down with them to see all the so-called Denver sound stuff that was just starting of you know, 16 horsepower later woman had Slim Cessna and Munley and uh, Denver Gentleman and all these and and, and Devochka even came out of that and went their own path and got way bigger. But they, they would have been right there with me. And boy, does that rocket through me sometimes when I'm at shows in Denver. I mean, at one point I was seeing this incredible band you must see at least once in your life called King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard from Australia who were rapidly getting so big you'll be lucky to see them in, a, in an arena at this point, but some of the stuff, then I thought, oh my god and Julian Clive aren't here. Yeah, get this. Like the Dills 
The Dills used to do a, the Dills used to do a cover of What Goes On. A lot of the Hollywood punk rockers didn't know who it was. Right. They didn't know who it was. I remember Brendan Mullen being so angry. I didn't know what it was. Brendan Mullen, what these motherfuckers don't know. I didn't know what it was. It, it, I had a real moment at one point, and one of the two nights I saw him at Red Rocks in Colorado, three hours a night, all different songs, no repeats, and there's going to be a third night with still no repeats. That's <laughs> They're that kind of a band. But anyway, you know, with some of it, it just occurred to me, oh my God, Julie and Clive aren't here. I mean, they, they died in a mountain climbing accident together in 1996, and, you know, every once in a while that just stuff just rockets through me me and it hits me all over again and I had to you know make the effort to, I didn't quite have to cry it out but pull myself back together again and just get up and keep going which is what they would have wanted and of course I'm sure you have moments like that with D Boone as well yeah. you know life deals your hand right you just got to play it it's it yeah I mean I've had to say this at so many memorials just you know there is no such thing as closure that's just a pop psychology term to justify, you know, the mindfuck industry and psych meds and the death penalty. But closure in real life was something that heavy. It doesn't exist. You know, you just it's going to hit you every once in a while. Sometimes it's hit me and my mom at the same time when I'm back in Boulder, too, because that was her daughter and it meant no grandchildren and this, that and the other. And they were each other's best friends and joined at the hip probably from the moment she was born. But anyway, you know, what would be happening now and stuff? So, uh, you know, there's these moments, then you get up and then. You know what I said, everybody out there who's had terrible losses like this, and we all have, even recently, another friend of mine who worked in journalism, Chronicle Examiner, really good dude, he dropped dead of a heart attack or whatever, it was at 52, and there's a young son involved. So yeah. uh, you would have loved this dude, too, old school newspaper man, Al Sarasovich. Anyway, um, wow. miss you, dude. And so, um, you know, it, it just, it happens. It happens. I mean, Vale, you know Vale from research Absolutely. publications and uh, Search and Destroy Mag before that. He he was so broken up about losing William Burroughs that he had a, a memorial for him at the Art Institute and a lot of people came. And, you know, all, you know, including older beats and stuff who are still there. Everybody came. And, and I gave the same thing at the end. What can I say that other people won't say and whatnot. I'm not sure I should even be here. You know, I don't know his books that well. I just knew him somewhat. Yeah. But um, people were thanking me afterwards for that. I thought, okay, I'm going to have to keep doing this because it's something that is helping other people besides me, basically. So, those uh, things are tough. you I know, you go many. and you do it for the other folks. I haven't been many of those. I was, I haven't been to many of those. They're too tough for me. I didn't go to my father's. I didn't go to D Boone's. I did go to Ronnie's. Ronnie's was the first one. And I read some lines. I read, I asked Dig, can I read some lines from uh, Leaves of Grass from Walt Whitman? I said, would that be weird, Ig? And Nick said, yeah, it's weird, but for this, it's okay. I didn't know what to say. Well, if that was therapeutic for you, then it was therapeutic for other people too. 
I mean, I don't think my mom would remember it now, but I was just devastated. I was in Boulder, and even in the local paper there, page two or three, Stooges guitarist Ron Ashton dies. I thought, oh, my God. Oh, my God. That was the first one I went. When, when I met him first, it was the Tower Records appearance at South by Southwest, where you were playing with Jay Maskus in the Fog. Ah, Jay And Maskus. then you were doing the Stooges set, and you were handling the vocals. Right. And it just got really emotional for me when I just, you know, there was Ronnie and there was a second Ronnie who'd learned his guitar style dueling Ron Ashton's with Jay Maskus being the other one. It was so cool. And I was just like, and I was just like, there was Ronnie, like, my God, there were four Stooges, four Iggy in the studio. It yeah, wasn't that, just that was Iggy. Funny. How much oh, of my God, life and where I am today do I owe to me, that yeah. man? Ron Ashton. How much do I owe him and his brother and Dave Alexander and the rest? It's not just Iggy, even though we're both front men and everything, and some of the ups and downs of Iggy's life he was public about when he came back. Um, you know, it, 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 with uh, the idiot and all, were very similar to stuff I was going through, and that gave me a lot of strength. As did reading any Patty Smith interview you care to name. But how much of that, Ronnie? Oh my God! So I thanked him and thanked him profusely when we were sitting talking. Like I was wondering who on earth is this guy. But uh, uh, yeah, me talking at memorials, I, I couldn't make a career out of it. It's too much. It was weird because Ronnie was the first one I went to, and then Tony. My pool cleaner friend, not much long after that. And then Steve Reed's Ma. I went to three of them in one year, though the only ones I've been to. They all happened in one year. I never went to them before that, and I never went to them after. You were telling me about meeting Ronnie at Waterloo Records in Austin. Now, what Jay Maskus, you know, Jay, Jay Maskus was originally a drummer. He learns guitar by listening to right. Funhouse. So what he told me was, first you rip off the guy, then you play with him in a band. That's what he told me. He's a man of few words. He's a man of few words. I noticed. I mean, I I couldn't resist putting my bu- King Buzzo hat, uh, hat on with a disarming, hi, how you doing? And the first thing out of my mouth was, I really, really liked that Upside Down Cross album. Right. He plays drums on that. Oh, yeah. That's, that's what oh, he yeah. started that's what does- And that's why he didn't really like Raw Power. He thought it was too rockabilly. He loved Funhouse. Funhouse was the first one I heard too. I heard Funhouse before I heard the first album. Yeah, I heard the first one first, then Raw Power, which was my, and then I couldn't get my hands on Funhouse for a year or more, maybe. Then one came in sealed to trade a tape for 10 cents. And uh, it grew and grew and grew on me, of course, but I was still mainly a Raw Power guy. And then the first time I ever, well, we met Klaus at the audition, then went to his place. We were just talking about music. He played me Magic Terry and we talked about other things. And then we got in a good natured argument over whether Raw Power was better than Funhouse. And ultimately I came over to the Funhouse side and it's been kind of top of my favorite album ever, like so many of the rest of us and stuff. It's the top one. It's hard to believe it was recorded in 1970. It sounds like it was recorded tomorrow. I mean, it doesn't sound old timey. It does not sound old timey. It does not sound old timey. It's not just the music. It is indeed the way it was recorded. And somehow Don Gallucci, the producer, who supposedly freaked out and turned Christian after that session. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what I heard. But he... Well, what I really heard was he changed his name. Them. He changed his name, and then he got into real. What I heard was he changed <laughs> his name and got into realty. But it wasn't because of the Stooges. It was other record business that made uh, gave him a sour taste, and he moved up to Portland. Well, the other production credit I've seen for him was uh, Crabby Appleton. <laughs> Thought you'd remember them. 
Oh yeah. <laughs> but anyway, that's what I heard. It was the industry or whatever, the racket that fucking right. bummed him out. It wasn't the Stooges experience. He actually dug working with him. Well, in case we lost the audio on that, uh, you know, the, the Waterloo records gig where I saw you guys play and met Ronnie, I just, it was this revelation. Hey, wait a minute. The Stooges and Iggy and the Stooges wasn't all about Iggy. It was about all of them. And that man on that guitar right there completely changed my life. Where would I be? Where would either one of us be without Ronnie and Scotty and Dave Alexander yeah. and James and whatnot, besides Ig to this day and Steve McKay, of course, too. Mother Steve. Of course. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, you know, people say Ramones in three chords. TVI, Funhouse, they're one chord. <laughs> we got some like Harry Nielsen, Lime in the Coconut shit going on there. Yeah, one part, <laughs> Land of a Thousand Dead. You know, no, there's songs that have one fucking part. American woman. Yeah, I mean, I mean, la later when I listened to Funhouse again, I hadn't for a while. And after a certain other band was really starting to break molds and people either loved them or absolutely hated them early on, called Flipper. And the entire side two of Funhouse, the jazzier side, which was basically one riff with all this amazing stuff going, oh my God, this is kind of like Flipper. And I, of course, I hadn't heard it that way before but let, let's move uh a little little more on, on my own reactions to to music here when i i first found out about the Minutemen, and there was that original paranoid time seven inch at the wax track store in denver and there also at the same time was of course jealous again the 12 inch by black flag and there was a song white minority and i kind of you know mostly kind of wrongly assume oh my god are these guys kind of right wing and oh my god then they're putting out a, of all bands they're putting out a band called the Minutemen, and i immediately thought of that you know that the oath keepers of the time and in the 60s and 70s that militia thing along the southern border and other places it was nationwide, I think, but not very big, calling themselves the Minutemen. And I thought, oh my God, they can't be named after that, can they? And then Tim Yohannan, the Maximum Rock and Roll, he was like, no, 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 that's not what they, look at this song called Joe McCarthy's Ghost. And of course, the music was a little bit unclassifiable. It wasn't another Orange County hardcore band. It was something else. So, you know, big credit to SST and Flag on that one for first non-black flag record an SST is not another black flag clone. It's the Minutemen. And then you came up for the, uh, it was a two night all SST night at the Mabuhe and a lot of bands that didn't have records out, but you know, like that. No, Saccharin Trust hadn't hit yet, but there was, oh no, it was, uh, there were some other bands, SoCal, even TSOL was on the bill the first night. Yes. But then, of course, then we actually all saw the Minutemen and had never seen such a wild, energetic big man in our lives as D. Boone. And sure enough, it was kind of part gang of four, but faster and kind of something else, clean but choppy guitar. And it was like like no other. Well, you know, Nervous Breakdown is SST-001. Jealous Again, SST-003. SST-002 is Minutemen. There you go. Greg Ginn sees our second gig and asks us to be on the label. Wow. We didn't solicit him or anything. You know, he, would you, you want to be on our label? And did Spot record that I one? Bob was, 
Greg Shaw was going to put out, they were called Panic, and he was going to put out the Panic 45, which was Nervous Breakdown. Oh, my. It was bullshit. So, Greg, they, they Raymond renames the band, comes up with a name, because there was a Hollywood band called Panic or some shit. Right, so, they had right. to change their name to Black Flag from Raymond. And then SST stands for Solid State Transmitter. Greg Ginn made antenna tuners because he was into ham radio. Right. He That was already an existing electronics thing. That's where it comes from. But by him talking to people with ham radio as a teenager, he's got the idea of touring. Only the Dills had a van. All them Hollywood bands, they just wanted to be king of Hollywood. No one had thought about touring. Well, where where would you play? I mean, people were coming north, and the San Francisco bands were getting clear. Well, even the Screamers and some others made it clear up to Seattle, and then the Avengers actually made it to Vancouver and met DOA, who showed up three weeks, four weeks later and were so insane and wild and, you know, aggro that it just blew everybody's mind. (laughs) Completely Joey Shithead kissing on the audience about two songs in, and it was a Ray Campy audience that they'd been put on the middle of the bill bill by Dirk just to get him a gig as a favorite of the Avengers and everything. People wow. weren't even getting up out but of their tables D- to try, D- try and very, get away from them. Go ahead. The DOA was very early with uh, establishing the tour route. Them and Black Flag, very early. They're oh, pioneers. yeah. They, they did more to network with other bands and crack open other parts yeah. of the country than anybody else did. Yeah. I mean, they laid the groundwork and maybe Dead Kennedys were number three, but we were a distant number three to what was already laid by Black Flag and DOA. Yeah, absolutely. Chuck Dukowski's little phone book. Oh, my God. That's how it was all done. No, we, we, I, mean, those are the I, I had one too. I had one too, and we would trade from time to time to fill in some blanks Absolutely. and everything. Absolutely. Oh, Absolutely. Yeah. And that's how it was done. I still tore on that circuit. There's still remnants of that circuit left. Yeah, I'm, I'm assuming there's more than just Doug Kaufman in Denver where, you know, he was booking <laughs> you maybe, maybe even, did he ever book the Minutemen or did he start with Firehose? No, in Minutemen days, there was a guy in, that ran Denver named Barry Fay. Oh, God. You don't we know avoided him? him completely. He ends oh, up yeah. shooting himself to death. Well, he also, according to Bob Furbrush, who had to testify before a grand jury about Barry Fay, that they were that close, you know, just in a hair from handing down an indictment on Barry Fay for contract murder of Tommy Boland. And then well, Governor Lamb dissolved the, the grand player. jury. Yeah. You're talking about Very the guitar important. young guy. Yeah, yeah. And an am- I, saw him, I saw him in the five-man James game. Oh, really? He was in there for just a little bit. Right. Well, if you, if you, ever, if you ever get curious about the rest of that guy's work, which was mainly confined to the Denver area, he'd even come back to Denver and throw bands together when James Gang or later Deep Purple weren't on tour, would have people like Billy Cobham, Narada and Michael Walden, Stanley Sheldon, who then Peter Frampton plucked into his band and everything. And those, the things he had going on, it was basically in some cases a space metal jazz fusion band at times. You know, that some toned down versions wound up on the solo albums, Teaser, and then, uh, oh, what's the next one? It has Eyes in the title. It was on Columbia. But anyway, but uh, there's an entire 
maybe one or two dozen CD archive series from Tommy Bolin Archives of really well done recording from this period that you, of all people, would be blown away by, including the other bass players and drummers that he managed to draw in. He was a quite a talented man. There was another guitar player that I liked from Ireland named Rory Gallagher. He, he lived a little oh, long. Oh, yeah. But oh he yeah! Get the recognition, you know. Yeah. Did you ever see Rory Gallagher live? Yes, I saw him blow away Jethro Tull. Yeah, I, I at, the, at the him, fucking Coliseum. Yeah, I saw him right before Foghat in Denver, who also were pretty good live. But thinking back on Rory Gallagher and that that band of his, um, you know, yeah. that that bass player Jerry McAvoy was like Chuck Dukowski right. on stage. He was so physical. <laughs> and that wild piano player who came out of an amazing British blues boom oh, later band on. called yeah. Killing Floor. Yeah, they, 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 Lou Martin was in the band by then. I think the drummer was uh, Rod yeah, Diaz. I saw anyway, him as a trio every time I saw him. Right. The, 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 uh, thinking back many, many years later, I thought, you know, that was one of the most intense live bands I've ever seen. And that includes Black Flag and includes Minor Thread and includes Avengers at their peak or Bad Brains or whatever. They were that good. They were that they were yeah, that good. intense. And then many, many years later, who's on the marquee at the stone across the street from the Mabuhe? Rory Gallagher. But do I go, oh, he's probably not going to be any good anymore. It's probably going to be, oh man, I, I don't think I should go. And I didn't go. And years later, I finally run into somebody who did go. He said, oh yeah, it was those same four guys. And they were as good as they ever were. It was just completely insane. And not uh, that long yeah. after that, Rory Gallagher died. Yeah, but to finish... With Rory Gallagher, you like this. I'm assuming at some point you've played in Cork in Ireland, the city of Cork. Of course, yeah, a couple of times. You know what the town square is named now, right? Right, 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 right. The town it's square, hun- hundreds of years old. actually it's, from the town. He's a little town it's, it's near Ro- there. But it's Rory Gallagher Square. Oh, I know, and I know the town, t- town claim. Yeah, and then, and then finally my band, Jello uh, Biafra from the Guantanamo School of Medicine, we played in Cork, and then there was kind of a stonerish or rockish thing opened, but then the guy later, he just sits down beside me to suss me out, pulls up his shirt sleeve, and there's Rory Gallagher on his arm. <laughs> So we had a good, we we had a good time there. I just I just thought, my God, if we ever play there again and we can rehearse it in time, I would pull out a Rory Gallagher song in court. It'll either be completely sacrilegious, or everybody in the room is just going to be blown away and have a nice yeah. emotional moment. Like we the one saying, I really like is something like my shit would be Cradle Rock. Oh yeah. I like. Okay, I like. so so Minutemen, um, you know, being as unusual and almost unclassifiable as you were, and much wilder. Oh, you asked about the name. You asked about the name. Oh. That group actually goes back to the 30s and the 40s. Those they were fascist way back. And Deep Boom, <laughs> for that reason, wanted to call the band that. To, he said these guys are appropriating patriotic symbols. Let's dilute. Because, look, he asked for a list of band names. It was actually two words. It wasn't Minute Men. I was making fun of Arena Rock. I had Minute Men. We were Tiny Men. <laughs> He's the one make. he said make one word out of it, and let's go after those fucking fascists and dilute their power. That's really interesting. I could swear I saw an early interview, and one of you said, oh, no, we're called the Minutemen because all our songs are a minute long. I had a big, I mean, some of these names were terrible. You know, Dick Crane and the Blue Veins and shit, you know. 
<laughs> turd purse, you know. But, but <laughs> he liked good me. one. I had minute men, yeah, running sores, you know, like rolling stores. So I had minute men, two words. And he said, no, there's these assholes appropriating patriotic things that go way back before the Second War. Right. And there, there you know, was a group called the Minutemen who were on the early, early That's groups right. fighting our Revolutionary War. And like John Hancock. He wasn't talking about them. He's talking right, about these 30s, right. 40s fascists. And then in the 90s things- was these people on the border. You know what broke those people up on the border? Embezzlement and Ku Klux Klan shit. They're all fucking pieces of shit, okay? D. Boone thought if we called ourselves the same name they were, we would dilute any power they had by claiming they were patriotic part of those conquered Lexington guys. Well, in the long run, when people... You I do, was trying to make fun of Arena Rock, Jella. I was minute, man. Well, you succeeded in that, too, of course. But, uh, you know, and in the long run... We got the short song idea. We got the short song idea from this band called from England called Wire. Right. They had an album called Pink Flag. Right. right. That's where we... Because we thought everybody was going to think we were warmed over Creed's Clearwater Revival Blue Oyster Cult. We thought the only way we could fool people was a format change like what they did. And then we liked this... You said Gang of Four, but we actually liked the band before them, what was called the Pop Group. And they got this idea of putting Parliament with Captain Beefheart. Okay, you, you heard the Pop Group we before playing. Gang of Four. The record... Gang of Four came out on record quite a bit before the Pop Group, but you heard the Pop Group first. Magic Accidents well, Pop group, that way. Well, the pop group was in the they were teenagers they're younger than them they were teenagers they're I younger than us yeah but they came out with uh it's called she's beyond good and evil right yeah yeah she is beyond good and evil right 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 yeah yeah and then they're from they're from a port town called bristol where the other guys are college guys from Leeds. They went to, the, they're from the same town that the Mekons are from. Who are Leeds, right? Yeah, a college. Remember the Who album, Live at Leeds? That's recorded at the college, those guys. John, the drummer man of Mekons, lives in Chicago now, and he told me the whole right. story. They were all, and also Delta Five, these girls. I- they were I all part Dead, of the same group. I think Dead Kennedys played in that same place at the school at Leeds. Probably the third okay. tour, I think, was the Leeds one. It was definitely a bigger college hall. You know, not not basketball. Well, that's that's arena the town there, Yeah, and then the pop group guys were way from uh, Bristol's the last England town before you go into Wales. Okay. Oh, of course. Right, right, right. Newport is on Completely different kind of areas. You know how England is. Like 30, 40 miles makes a big fucking difference up there. Oh, tell me about it. Tell me about it. But this idea of uh, of funk, funk music, this was part of D. Boone's political thing to fight arena rock because we couldn't hear the bass and drums with arena rock. He thought the lyrics was thinking out loud. He thought the political part of Minutemen was not playing like arena rock with big guitar. It was having the bass and drums up. Of course, me and D, uh, Georgie were into that. We wanted, but that was his <laughs> idea. So we took from the R and B guys, play trebly guitar, and don't do power chords. Right, and, and that and, was he and, thought was a political thing of Minutemen. When did you first realize you had an unusual, you know, one of the best of a generation gift as a bass player? I, look, I always thought I was D Boone's bass player. He, he never had to teach me songs. I never had to teach him songs because we grew up playing together. I just right. thought I was the guy to play with. So that's where the gift was. I got this guy to play with. I just play and he comes up with parts. He plays. I just come up with parts. That's where we thought the luck was. And his mom put me on the bass. So it wasn't luck. She It was her decision. <laughs> 
Right. But uh, I, I also think it was the the movement, Jella, because all of a sudden the best guy isn't on guitar. We're all starting off. We're all in level playing field. The singers, the drummers, the guitar players, the bass, we're all equal. It's no longer the best guy and the prettiest guy sings, right? Because of the movement was organized different. Well, I think about the second time I saw you at the Mabuhe, and you'd already grown in many different ways, but one of them was that um, you were very physical at that point. You'd d- d- trying to you know, get your Chuck Dukowski on physically or you know, be like Chip Kinman who got his stage moves down as he was learning to play guitar and the moves came first and then he was a good guitar player by the time the dills just got really 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 good but the stage stuff came first but in unlike Tukowski, your fingers were all over the place as befitting the music which was never going to just slam into people like an avalanche like black flag because the music was much more complex here's the other thing i wasn't really born entertainer like d boone Georgie, I was scared out of, they were pants shitters. So what I would do is whoop myself like a dervish, get in a frenzy. So I wouldn't <laughs> be so afraid. Also, I looked over at D, man, who could not be afraid having a dude like D Boone on stage with you? That guy was such a confidence builder. If this guy's, I mean, and he's going to town. He's like playing like it's his last gig every fucking time. So that's what I would try to do. I'd try to whoop up into a frenzy so I wouldn't be so fucking scared because well, it was pants shooter for me. Well, another another thing that stood out, I think you talked about this in a Maximum Rock and Roll interview, or maybe it was Flipside, where at that point, the younger hardcore bands, a lot of them still lived with their parents, including most of the DC people, except maybe for Henry. And... um or the, they were living, you know, really living the life, living at the church down where you were or other things, a little bit older and on their own and doing whatever it took to get to the next month's worth of bills and, you know, find, you know, get food and drugs if you're into that or whatever. And that so there was two different groups of people. But you guys, as Tim pointed out, I mean, the minimum, you guys actually have jobs the whole time. Well, yeah, we considered music yeah. a job too. Just didn't do as good. <laughs> what were some of the other job. jobs? We, we practiced almost every fucking day. It was like a job, but we're working two, three jobs. What were some of those jobs? Because, you know, well, I told you one of them, the yeah. meter reader, yeah, the pot pan boy, right? Uh, we're, we're parking lot, to run the parking lot, buttloads of fast food kinds of things. <laughs> uh, worked for a paralegal during double nickels as dime for this old lawyer in his 90s who walked with two canes. <laughs> Here's the thing. The more money they paid you, the more they wanted of your life. So exactly. you had to work econo jobs because they were flexible enough to let us tour. Right. Or something you could find another one of when you got back, which is much harder to pe- for people to do now and has been for the last yeah. quarter century or more. So that's what we had to do. We all lived on our own. We were all first born. We couldn't live together. For a little bit, me and Dee Boone lived at my ma's when I had the knee surgery. But that was only like eight, nine months. Most of it, we lived on our own. So you had to pay rent, you know? Like I said, we were from working families, so you had to do these other jobs. But we also thought being in a band was like a job. I know they said playing music, but man, we had to work at it. To get that shit to, like you said, complex and starts and stops, we had to practice that shit. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Especially with George. So so what what were some of D and George's jobs? Well, D Boone, I remember his daddy got him a job at a parts counter at the dealership where he put in radios, and D Boone 
got yelled at for listening to soul music. That's where he writes, this ain't no picnic. Even though there's no racist words in there, that's what it was about. And that was from a job experience of his. He he did all kinds of stuff, you know, all the fast food kind of stuff, all the... Uh, uh, he was a handyman at Nichols Institute. I remember a lady calling the police. He was doing a weed whacker thing, and he thought he, she called, told the police he was a crazy man attacking the building. You know, in the old days of punk, and this is one of the reasons why we went back to our high school clothes, because these motherfuckers would give us a hard time. You know, we painted on our clothes and did all that too, but we had to engage with the square John world because of yeah, where else was the, you know, the landlords were into collecting little green paintings right? yeah. <laughs> and understand this subsidizing artist thing. So we had to trade little green paintings to live in pads and, and for chow, <laughs> you know, now rent pad and Pedro was $118 a month. Oh yeah. The gas was still 30, 40 cents a gallon. Okay. Cause we're talking, right? Like I said, my first union job, $6, 15 cents. That was big money. Oh yeah. <laughs> the end of the seven. I mean, one of the, 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 the third place I had in San Francisco, I was paying $65 a month. The room wasn't very big. I had to put me, some stuff Richard in storage, me, 65 a Richard month. Richard Hell told me in 1970 when he moves to New York City, sometimes the landlord didn't even come around. It'd be like $8, $12 a month. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Different reality, I mean, but things were way more econo. Yeah. Oh, exactly. And of we course, that is- was not a slogan, okay? It was a way of living. <laughs> Oh, I know. I know. And the title of that documentary about you, too, that many people right, speak right. very highly of, We Jam Econo. Yeah, we right. had- and, and it was, we thought, look, when we found out, because we thought rock and roll was some Mount Olympus and all the shit, but we found out, no, Greg goes and he gets the, the, the album cover shot. He goes to this guy to get it mastered. He gets it pressed. You can do this. You just got to make it econo enough. Right. Which is getting harder right? and harder. We didn't know that before. Even as, as a... Well, no, we're, ta- we're talking in the early 80s. Right, right. <laughs> and now, trying to keep alternative yeah, yeah. tentacles in, in existing, so we can put out my stuff and all these other cool things I like, right. which is often like the early SST stuff nobody else would touch because it doesn't sound right. like some little genre thing and you know the people aren't interested right. you know they 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 say what they want i never censor what people say and stuff like that although granted there was there was one album that got turned in by somebody we never did work with and the opening song was rabidly homophobic and so we had to back out of that one it was just you know i can't defend this type deal it's it's just yeah. wrong i think even the people in the band would agree with that now but you know how that is but but it's, you know, yeah. trying to stay econo and still keep afloat. You know, now it can take nine months to a year just to get vinyl pressed. Now that oh, yeah. a lot of people want vinyl again. And then the pressing plants want all the money in advance instead of waiting for you to get the stuff to the distributors. The distributors get it to stores. The stores hopefully pay the distributors. And there's in the case of Revolver, we do get paid by the distributor for what actually came to them and it you know and that's another year and a half after that so all kinds of things we've been running out of because people keep wanting to buy all these other things of ours and not just mine so it's it's a real tough spiral going on now plus rainbow the pressing plant in la ended and we got a that's lot of used. our back that's what we back. used in those days yeah yeah we Alberta got a lot of stampers back some of which were originally at alberti before they stopped but right. now even to get any of that test pressed to make sure it's still okay and not damaged that could take six to nine months and okay yeah this one's good go ahead and make the record okay see you next century 
And so so that part of Econo is becoming very cruel indeed. And of course, for... it's been a while where, you know, and again, I'm talking quarter century here, where bands that used to tour their asses off, like a lot of the SST bands, and then No Means No, Victim's Family, Alice Donut, all those, you know, they could still pay their rent, even in New York, and still tour their asses off and not give up their bands. But then later bands have crashed and burned because they just, the rents are higher, there may be student loans hanging over their heads, and they throw in the towel earlier. So like you're saying, there's a lot of difficulties nowadays, yeah. Yeah, but you you are still out there, still being the hardest working man in show business, as far as I can tell. How are you getting around this and surviving at this point? Well, mainly gigs, touring. Because you also have a lot of different bands, a lot of different releases. Look, I get royalties too. Greg Ginn's always paid me. Really? Wow. So I'm really glad to hear that because, of course, all kinds of people. Mainly, I I play gigs. I play gigs for a living. Okay. At this point, with more technical difficulties, I can, you know, there's all kinds of stuff we didn't hit on that you may want to hit on. And, well, I don't really want to talk about the I like this stuff about the old days. I like this stuff you talk about the old days because I think young people are curious about our time and what we are the movement came out of. Well, I think one one thing that's important that is back when this supposed magic was happening and everything was all old school, rah rah, cool retro. As you say, the scene was tiny. You know, the people in the audience yeah. were the people who weren't on stage with their own band at that time, that's, or. You know, photographers (laughs) like Ed Culver and then Glenn Friedman and Alison Braun and others and things like that. It was it was very, very small. And also in the case of Black Flag and DOA and especially MDC a little bit later, there was all kinds of hostile things you had to go through, not just with unsympathetic venue owners and promoters not you know not not just the Barry Fays who kind of you know there was a police raid on dead Kennedys in Denver and there was a call from Fayline earlier that day to our manager why didn't you play for us blah 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 and of course yeah. you know we had intentionally steered clear of Bill Graham and I knew who the other Bill Graham was too and whatnot but <laughs> um there the, sometimes you'd get people who were real badass old school bar owners who somehow got talked into letting a punk band play, but you know, they, they might be mob. They might as well be mob or whatever. And the bouncers didn't want anybody to even dance and were quite ready to slug even a girl if she got up and moved. And you had to run into that when town after town, after town. And if somebody did get a cool place and kids started showing up and it was somebody, the age of the DC people or whatever in another town starting their own bands and venues, then the police would try and shut them down. Sometimes called by the cops were called by their own parents. You never knew. So the, the, all the fighting we had to do just to create this circuit that so many people and not just, you know, the commercial pop punks of all different kinds of walks of music who play their own stuff. And thankfully there's a lot more opportunities to do that now. And it's because of punk and new wave, but what we went through to carve that out, people don't, usually get that now they don't know at all it was always like this there were always there were always skateboard endorsements and beer commercials and a label that'll buy us a van and yeah and and this is just the way it's done and no it's not the way it was done 
And in some and, and post COVID, some of us may be fighting all over again. But then, man, you read about those bebop guys. Oh my God, how that scene changed. Tell, no tell, tell us for about artistry. That. Tell, well, I didn't hit on jazz at all yet, and I know how much that means to you. Go ahead. Yeah, well, Petty Bone turned me on to that, and I saw a lot of parallels. This other world, people are doing it just for the art, and man, like the last poet said, you know, it's ju- just us, no justice. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's just, yeah, it's just, it's horrible, horrible. Well, well and, 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 and you know, you, you got to keep the spirits up. You can't totally let it beat you down or you would not create anymore. But man, have they put up stuff to really oh, yeah. destroy any kind of, uh, you know, integrity towards the art. I mean, the, the, there was a transitional period when I first moved back to San Francisco for good in early 1978, where major labels in yeah. mass pulled the plug on signing any more punk rock bands and people who were kind of in negotiation from the nuns and probably any number of LA bands and whatnot, suddenly the bottom fell out. The last one signed was the Dickies. And the word was at the time that one of them had an uncle high up at A&M and that was what got him signed. And, you know, for A&M, they got so big in England and Europe, it was very much their financial worthwhile to sign the Dickies and stuff. But some people were really bummed by that. Some of them actually toned down their sound and started putting on the pink skinny ties and trying to be a little more power pop or new wave and have a song about the radio. Hopefully that'll get you signed, whatever. But the people who were left who decided, okay, we were never going to get quote unquote signed in the first place. And I, and among others, just never wanted to be either. So I think that, We're just going to play this because this is what we want to play. And this is what we love. This is our spirit. This is our totem. This is our higher power, whatever. This is what we want to continue to do because we like doing it. And I think that's why the American punk underground and even the post-punky stuff and other things within a year or so of that was much more extreme than what was going on in England or even Europe at the time, because you could get signed, you could get on top of the pops, Gang of Four would be on magazine covers and things like that, in spite of how unusual they were. Here, no chance. So punk got wild and wild and hardcore, and then post-punk, and then um, things like that just got more and more extreme, and then that finally made it across the pond in fully formed. Well, you know, my inspiration, Screamers, Nervous Gender, you know, uh, up in your town, uh, No Mercy, Zev. Punk was anything. It was not a style of music. It was a state of the head. Oh, yeah. E- That's the way even, I'll even always think of it. Punk and New Wave were interchangeable terms till right about the time the majors pulled the plug and said New Wave is okay, but punk is not. I mean, Survival Research Labs was punk. And even Voice Farm, an early and excellent underrated synth pop band, kind of like OMD, Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark in San Francisco. They were so good, I even had them close the Let Them Eat Jelly Beans album. It was all considered punk and new wave talking heads were considered a punk band blondie was considered a punk band and uh and sex pistols were a new wave band that was the way people looked at it until the whole thing got split from above by the entertainment industry 
And there was probably, you know, um, but Zappa said jazz is not dead. It just smells funny. There was all the non-funny smelling jazz going around too, or uh, more danceable or more mellow drony, you know, Scientology, jazz fusion, or later Kenny G, whatever. But what I want to get to before we go, and we're going to have to go in about, I don't know, six or seven minutes here. We're going to run out of what our technology can do on this one. It's funny that you said smell, though. It's funny you said smell, though, because jazz is actually short for jasmine, which is strong-smelling flower that they put in uh, brothels, you know, whorehouse, because this is whorehouse music. Well, hopefully that's no not radio all record these... players. You got guys improvising. Yeah, and 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 also brothers didn't spell it with a Z. That's that's it that's was with an right. S. It was J A S. I remember seeing some of that, and hopefully, well, you know, it's it's all this stuff. Of course. It's 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 of uh, you know. A room, uh, what's it called? Chinese whispers, right? You get a telephone right. or something. It, it gets well. The, the, the fl- so what's flesh the real out- deal? The real deal is you and your buddy. You know that's why when you asked me about being a bass player, D Boone, that was my real thing. And then this movement that was open enough to let us take something personal between us, and we could take turns playing with the other guys. Well, before we go, I really want to ask you about, because every year I get an email from you celebrating his birthday, and that is John Coltrane. Oh, yeah. Why is he so important to Mike Watt? Well, you know, it uh, seems he was serious about wanting to make people happy with his music or just to be some kind of positive force, whatever that meant. And something that that's loose enough. You know, later on, I got into Walt Whitman, too, you know. Like, if there's anything I like about the country, it might be in that fucking poem. He made a poem out of his body. There's something about the, the connection. It's not just something that they use to service a lifestyle. It's not like they're totally satisfied, but John Coltrane was always trying to get further and further. Because yeah, I don't know his stuff but it seems very like, well. Because the guy, because look, well, I got into music to be with my friend and I lost him. So I had to find another reason for music. And seeing John Coltrane, he said, yeah, music, there's something about it. It's a universal. Even if you're going to lose people, you're going to get lost. But in the meantime, there is this fabric. And music can be a force of good. Oh, absolutely. You know, not just be something, not to play people, not just to jive people and get something over on them. It can be actual something, you know, whatever the fuck. Oh, yeah. Resounds, resonates because there's something true about it. It ain't phony. There's something about yeah, it. I mean, I, we're not talking genre. We're not talking about notes or scales or, or whatever it is. There's just something about it. You know, it's in Raymond's work too. There's something about art that trips me out. And John Coltrane kind of does it in a visceral thing where it's getting in my ear hole and filling me, you know, and, it, and it's just And you never thing. get tired of it. No, I never do. It's, it's, it's a trip. I got 604 songs on the iPod. Thing. Wow. Start every radio show, right? I've been doing that show 21 years and five months now. What for Pedro? I always start with one of his songs and I don't get tired. That's awesome. You know, it's because it's probably the exotic thing. I didn't grow up with it. Well, I think. And it fills a hole that I lost when I lost E. Boone. It somehow it fills that hole a little bit. I mean, for some people, you are that person, that artist. And for some people, I guess I or Dead Kennedys or Lars, some of the others are that too. And I'm, you know, I'm very, very grateful for that. And uh, I also say that a lot of this music that we did and all the other people we love did and uh, was 
that considering how th dark things got compared to where he thought it was going to go. And we thought so many things were going to keep changing after the 60s end of the Vietnam War ended and Nixon was run out of town on a rail. We weren't expecting soft rock, adult rock, corporate Democrats and stuff and things like that. And it, the sober 70s gave way to what my friend John Greenway named the evil 80s. But why didn't they seem so evil when Reagan got in, greed is good, let's destroy all the environmental stuff and all of the new, as much of the New Deal and the Great Society as we can. What made the 80s bearable for a lot of people was one thing and one thing alone. It was the music. The 80s kind were a good time overall for me. And it was because of the music. So on that note, best of luck with everything. And I may call you in a second because we didn't talk about knee surgery at all. And that's probably just for us. But uh, but basically, um, thanks for coming on. This is a wonderful discussion. I mean, we've done this in dressing rooms, too. I mean, I, I, I we could hear each other tell stories about our adventures and other artists we like's adventures. We could do that for, uh, you know, till we drop dead from lack of sleep after one or two months, whatever. So I love you, brother. Take care. We'll be on each other's shows again, but uh, okay. don't take any wooden hostages. All right. Keep that keel in the water. 